Well, tonight, I just wanted to share a bit some teachings that might be quite obvious, but have been somehow very uh, awakening more and more interest in me, more and more sense of the possibility of what seems like the most simple teachings of the Buddha as part of a really intrinsic path of our awakening. So you heard from the introduction. I've been on this path of studying Buddhist teachings and meditation for a long time. And uh, I've been teaching uh, Buddhist meditation and the whole Buddhist path for also quite a long time. And it's just turned out that most of the teaching I do tends to be intensive silent retreats from anywhere from a weekend to three months. And we just finished the first six weeks of the three-month retreat out at the meditation center in Barrie. So we do that every year. So that, that just to give you a sense of where my energy has tended to go. And so this is also Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, and it's often that the, the heart of the teachings that we learn about, what's new to us in this culture, is the meditation piece, which is, of course, fascinating. The meditation is the, the, the part of, of really learning, well, you know, I don't have to go into what meditation is, but where we're really learning to investigate, to explore the qualities of our mind and heart. As the Buddha said, everything he taught is to free our hearts and minds from suffering, to free our hearts and minds from confusion. So when I came up in, in my practice, in the way I learned this whole path, the meditation piece was it's central, but it was kind of unspoken sent as the most important. And it's always bracketed when in anywhere you read the, the talks of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha. He always talks about the three pillars as uh, Dhanasila Bhavana in the Pali, or generosity, ethical conduct, non-harming behavior, virtue, or, and Bhavana, which is mental cultivation. And what's clear is the, the, the thread of awakening, of really seeing through the confusion that, that brings suffering in our lives, in our heart and mind. The, the place that that seemed the richest, the most interesting, has always been in the meditation. So meditation centers, city centers, intensive retreats. And Donna Sila, generosity and moral conduct are, yeah, those are important. Sure, you know, you really... We were always told the early years you can't, you need to have ethical conduct so that you don't have remorse, so that you can, you know, meditate. Your meditation can go deeper if you're not out there killing people, basically. Um, which is true. I mean, that's true. <laughs> and generosity is good. Yeah, you know, generosity is good. So, so this might be like a duh kind of a talk, but what's been just more and more rich for me in the past few years is coming to understand more and more deeply for myself that everything the Buddha taught, as far as I can tell in my limited experience, none of it is just like, oh, by the way, do this so you can do something better. Every aspect of the teachings is a path of awakening. Every aspect is a way to transform the suffering habits of our heart and mind into um, compassion, into clear seeing, into non-ill will, into loving kindness, into wisdom. And so 
I just want to talk a little bit tonight about generosity and about sila, virtuous conduct, non-harming conduct, as aspects of our path of awakening and in themselves as paths of joy, of happiness, of purifying. Not that we have to wait till we can get to, you know, a sandwich retreat. Sandwich retreats are good. Or a three-month retreat. Three-month retreats are great. Or go to be a nun, you know, for a year. That's great. But we don't have to do that. We can really start and continue to open up to uh, generosity as a way of being that transforms our heart and mind in itself. That's a, a path of wisdom. It's not a second best supportive practice. The same with ethical conduct. And in both of them, it's about how we do it, how we pay attention as we're being generous, how we notice what's going on in our hearts and minds as we're refraining from harmful behavior. So you can see why with with awareness, with investigation, with kindness, with interest, these are really important aspects of waking up. I can only, in this short of a time, only hope to point a little bit. There's no way I can cover it all. There's vast things to say about both of these topics. So my only hope is if, I mean, sure, you know all about them too, if it just sparks any kind of interest to take us into your life and really uh, include it, explore it, enjoy it, recognize the happiness that generosity and non-harming behavior bring us rather than a should or rather than not being generous is not being ethical is another way to hate yourself but to really see that these are sources of great happiness so in the last few years also I mean I guess every few years as we continue on our path if we had to give a summary of what we're learning or how we see the path it would probably change from time to time. So my current, just my current one, I'm not up here saying this is the truth of all time. Just my current synopsis <laughs> would be that really all of our practice is about transforming the suffering habits of our mind and heart. So, and this is, you see this everywhere in the Buddhist teaching. When he talks about sharing what will bring us each to come to understand the deepest contentment, to really learn that we can live in this world as it is. He never said he could change the world, and he didn't change the world. But that we can learn to live in this world as it is without adding, in the, by the way we relate to ourselves and others, without creating suffering for ourselves to be able, and from that clear seeing, to be able to respond more appropriately to help alleviate the suffering of others. So it starts with ourselves. And in the basic way he was talking, saying that the source of our deepest confusion and suffering is that we don't recognize the way things are accurately. And that's, you know, 10 million other talks. I can't totally go into it. But we don't recognize accurately, for example, the fact that everything's in constant change. 
We can say, yeah, I get it. Everything's in constant change. But then how do we act? We hold on to what we want. We're distressed when what we love goes away, as if that shouldn't happen, right? We go, no, no, I don't do that. <laughs> Look and see. In ourselves, because we don't recognize accurately, and this is confusion, we don't see clearly, we, that, that the habits of mind that cause us great suffering are greed and aversion, ill will, anger, fear. So basically greed, negativity, and the confusion that doesn't see accurately. Now this is kind of the essence of the Buddha's teaching. And when he talks about transforming, what's so cool to me isn't that we have to go out and with hatred say, look at these disgusting habits in my heart and mind. I am a horrible human being, so I better change these now. It's mostly what people come on retreats, that's what they're doing. I hate how much greed I'm seeing. It's really disgusting. I have to stop that. We go, well, you're just changing from greed to aversion, you know. That's not really <laughs> what we're trying to do here. You know? But that's what we know. That's what we trust. That's what's so familiar, we don't even recognize that there's another possibility. And the catch-22, you guys understand catch-22, right? I, I teach a lot in Europe, in English, but catch-22... Have you ever tried to explain to somebody <laughs> what that means if they haven't read the book? So the catch-22 is what keeps the greed and the hatred, the fear, the aversion going is not recognizing accurately. What keeps us from recognizing accurately? Guess what? Greed and aversion in the mind. So when we're really angry at someone, if you look at them, how do they look? Do you really appreciate all their beautiful qualities as they keep on doing this horrible thing that's making you angry? Nah, not so much. But what's so cool about the Buddha's teaching isn't that we have to uproot this stuff with hatred and willpower. Okay, now I'm going to stop clinging. I'm going to stop having any greed from now on. But that through the paying attention, seeing, how these habits arise and how they work. If we really notice that without judgment, we start to recognize the suffering in ourselves for ourselves. And this is the cool piece. So when we see that, the wisdom naturally arises like, oh, this isn't so helpful. And it starts to drop away. It's not that we have to cultivate this huge willpower, figure it all out ahead of time, and then create the insight. I mean, it's a huge job. We can't do that. We just have to pay attention, see what qualities in our heart and mind are bringing up more suffering, see what qualities are actually bringing up more contentment, more connectedness, more happiness, more joy. And if we're willing to just look without prejudging, without self-hatred, without fear, it's really obvious. The habits are strong, but the clear seeing of really of generosity, of non-harming behavior, which translates as friendliness, as compassion, these naturally lead to wisdom. It's actually quite a cool thing. We both, it's a huge task on one half. On the other half, it's so much less than we think. And we just have to start paying attention. So what I'm trying to say here tonight is you don't have to only meditate to do that. Yeah, it helps us learn how to look at our minds, but also cultivating generosity 
cultivating non-harming behavior actually purify, transform these habits of mind that lead into greed, that lead into aversion and ill will. Because the way we are set up as humans, we cling to the habits because we think they're going to be what make us happy. It's not like we're just, you know, perversely evil or something. We're trying our best. We just, you know, half the time. Okay, don't take offense. Maybe I'll just speak for myself. We have the time, we just don't have a clue. We're doing what we think's going to make us happy, but it just doesn't always work. So starting to recognize these accurately, but also seeing how insidiously these habits creep in, both from inside and from outside, from the external environment. So I'll give you two examples that just came up today, this morning, in my experience. So when I was sitting this morning for myself, the one with ill will, with anger, I was sitting, I sat for about half an hour, and I just noticed a habit in my mind, which I've noticed a lot, the mood, you could call it, of resistance. Have you ever experienced that? Just, just whatever, I just don't want to do that. No, no, no one knows what that is, right? <laughs> whatever it's to, it comes up to some, sp- but I was just sitting, it wasn't even to anything, it was just there. And whatever then comes up into that mood, okay, I think I'll do X, Y, Z. What does the resistance mind say? Oh, no, you know, I can't do that. And if you're at all intellectual, you'll find that the, the mind is really, really good at rationalizing, right? So it can come up with all kinds of good reasons why I shouldn't do whatever the heck it is. But because I've recognized this, thank God, over all these years, I can feel the resistance is basically uh, aversion, kind of anger, negativity in the mind. And then whatever choice or thought or a decision that needs to be made happens to come up at that time, the, the view of it, the way we see it, is colored by that resistance. So, no, that wouldn't be any good. Oh, no, I can't. You know, whatever it is. So the resistance may have come up because I don't, I don't even know what it was about. I was just sitting there. You know, I don't know what it was about. Maybe it's because I didn't want to sit anymore. Maybe it's because I don't even know. But then if you had to make a decision, like if, if someone had called me and said, well, you do this or that today, I would go, oh, no, it's too much trouble. You know, I couldn't do this or that. Can't see clearly. Because when I notice now when there's resistance and I just get up and, okay, resistance is like this, and I don't really let it drive the bus, and I just get up and do whatever, the resistance is gone, and I can see much more clearly what to do. So it's a familiar pattern for me, and I see I'm not the only one. It's a quality of ill will, of aversion, that then colors experience. It colors the choices I make. It's kind of self-perpetuating, you know? Like for exercise, you know, if they don't have exercise, I'll be so tired. Unless you're an exercise junkie, then you think you can't stop exercising one way or the other. But if I actually exercise, I feel better. If I listen to the resistance, I'll just sit there and go, no, I can't exercise. And the more I sit there, the tireder I get, which proves I really can't exercise. It just, you know, keeps going. So that's on that level. But it's so familiar if we don't notice. On the greed level, maybe some of you, I was listening to NPR this morning and had some little blip. And this is an easy shot, okay? They were talking about, um, talking to some so-called expert about the conspicuous consumption in the U.S. Okay, so this is an easy target, granted. 
but just talking to some how much you can buy and how much is spent and how they, they were saying, I have no idea if this is true, that the level of consumption in this country, just buying all kinds of things, it wasn't just particularly energy, that if this level of consumption was in the whole world, the world could only support 1.4 billion people at this level rather than 7 billion at the horrific level so many people are at. So that's one thing. And then they were saying how uh, part of some of the economic philosophy or stuff that's put out as well, there's a slump. So what would help the economy is that you should all go shopping. And I have to say I've heard that in some terms or another. Better to get out and, you know, get that money into the economy, basically go shopping. On the same level with greed and how it can slip in there as a way to make ourselves feel good if we're not noticing. I was reading a, an interview with the actress Emma Thompson who had just um, been in Burma for a few weeks uh, with, a, with a nonprofit doing some aid work. And I've been in Burma a lot. It's very poor. It really needs a lot. The government does almost nothing for the people. Well, nothing good anyway. And so she was actually talking at a conference in Burma, so that's already unusual. But she said one thing, just one thing, according to what I'm talking about that I thought was really interesting. So they were asking her, you know, why are you doing this? Why do you take your spare time and come here for these weeks and, and do this, this aid work? They had been going around to some villages. I'm, I'm not clear what they were doing. But she said, well, you know, it's really, there's so much suffering here and in the world. But so when I hear about the suffering, when I read about how much suffering there is, I feel really badly, you know, and we do. We feel badly when there's suffering. She says, so I realize when I feel badly, I could either go out and buy myself a new handbag to make myself feel better, or I could do some generous and compassionate action. So that's what I'm choosing to do now. And actually, when I first read that, I thought, yeah, yeah. But then I was thinking about it, because I thought it sounded kind of glib, you know, easy thing to say. But as I've thought about it more, and just watched in my own mind, without putting ourselves down, often, when we feel badly, and there's many reasons to feel badly, and it's not that we always have to go out and do aid work when there's some suffering, but when we're suffering even internally, often going and getting something pleasant is a way to, you know, think it's going to make us feel better. Maybe I just want to go get some ice cream. I'm not saying that's bad. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying we just watch what we do. It can feed the unspoken, unrecognized assumption that when things aren't going good, I need to get more good things. That that's the way out of unhappiness. And sometimes temporarily it may be. I'm not saying anything wrong with that, but just to see. There's one talk of the Buddhas where he said, the uninstructed person knows of no other escape from unpleasant feelings except to go and lust after pleasant sense experience the uninstructed person and that if you watch it how often we do that it makes me really sad to think of a life where that would be the only way we knew to lead us to happiness to lead us to peace go get more pleasant sense experiences it seems like such a bleak life doesn't it but it's 
deeply ingrained in our habit. Not that it's bad to have it, but to see that's not the only way out. What Emma Thompson was saying is generous and compassionate action actually brings so much more happiness, so much more contentment, so much more wisdom in our own hearts and minds. Not because it's a good thing you should do, not like that at all, but because it's actually transforming the habits in our mind of greed, the habits of self-centeredness, the habits of fear, the habits of ill will or anger. It's actually kind of, you know, strengthening the wholesome grooves in the non-existent mind, you could say, (laughs) rather than the suffering grooves. So I just want to talk now a little bit about working with generosity and with, um, just as I say, just pointing to a few things about generosity and uh, ethical conduct, non-harming conduct, a little only bit as, um, as path. The most important thing I say about both, I'll start with generosity, is it's not so much an external, we should be generous. It's about really bringing in an interest and awareness to our hearts and minds and then the situation around us before an act of generosity, during the act of generosity, and after the act of generosity. That what's transformative about cultivating generosity is the way that we relate to it, the way it really changes our heart and mind, the internal from the inside out. So it's not about, you know, that we just should give, 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 give and just do it in a very kind of glib whatever way. It's not that at all. And it's not, we're not just talking about, you know, generosity of wallets, generosity of things. It's, it's this sense of sharing whatever we have, food, our time, willingness to listen to a friend, caring, money, whatever. And I think in this country, I mean, it's kind of a broad generalization, but, but generally I think we tend to be pretty generous. I mean, America's the source of a lot of nonprofit organizations, when I grew up, my family wasn't very religious, but I had an uncle who was um, a Baptist, Christian Baptist in California. And he did what, you know, I remember hearing about tithing, where people would give a tenth of their income, which no one I needed, but he did. And it was so weird, he got the IRS audited him three or four years in a row, because they kept saying, we can't believe you're giving that much money to your church. You know? But this sense of, of generosity it's very strong. And so I grew up with it too, and it's, it's like a good thing to do, but a little bit of a should. You know, we have so much, so we should give to people who have less. Well-intentioned, but the peace that I never got until I've been learning a lot about this in the last maybe 10 years. I've been going to Burma, now Myanmar, but I've been going to Burma a lot in the winter, both to practice meditation sometimes to teach with a, a Burmese teacher, sometimes to, with some friends we've been just raising a little money and offering to lots of the nunneries that are around, very poor nunneries. And the nunneries are kind of um, a safety net for a lot of the poor kids because the government doesn't have anything like that. They can't all afford to go to school. 
But anyway, we've been doing this. I've been there um, in different roles a lot in the past 10 years, both the recipient, uh, being in meditation centers, the recipient of a lot of care, and as well as offering some little things. In the culture uh, in Burma, and also in Thailand where I was a nun, it's kind of ingrained, uh, because they're essentially Buddhist, largely Buddhist cultures, for, so both with the inner heart of it and also the external uh, institutionalization of it that's kind of, you know, kills the heart of it, just like anywhere. But generosity is very ingrained in those cultures. All the, the nunneries, the monasteries, the meditation centers all run completely on dana, on generosity. So you could go to sit there for a year or for months. There's no fee ever. You show up and you're welcome. You know, if there's room. There's never anything charged. And people come, and all these meditation centers, some, they're signed up a year ahead. People come from outside, Burmese families, and offer the meals. They'll pay for the meal for the day. And it's not cheap anymore. The place I was sitting last winter, there's about 200 people meditating each day. And the meals for the day was $400. I want you to know, people, except for the richies, people in Burma are really poor. Very difficult situation. And people are coming, signing up, offering meals, and then they sit and watch you eat. Because the generosity isn't just about the offering. It's in the sense of this incredible joy comes in the giving and in the receiving and in doing it in a very intentional way together. There's something that's very immediate and joyous and contagious about the generosity in these countries. As I just gave that example of how it's set up in all the nunneries and all the monasteries and all the meditation centers. But it's not just in the meditation centers. It's deep, deep in the culture. I remember I was riding in a little pony cart uh, way up in northern Burma, and the driver's a really poor guy. We were riding and talking to him. I guess I was with a friend who could speak Burmese. I must have been because he couldn't speak English. And we were talking about this Western monk who had been living around that area for a few years, a character, so everybody knew him. And he always went around barefoot. And this pony cart driver, very poor guy, kind of in rags, he was saying, oh, I feel so badly for him. He can't afford slippers, you know. I really wish I could just save enough money to buy him some slippers. And he really meant it. And I noticed in the first years I was there, my Western kind of conditioning is, oh, no, you don't want to, we have so much more than you, we don't want to take anything from you. And we started to see how, how separating, how alienating that is, how the, 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 the wanting to give whatever one can afford and the receiving of it in the same open-hearted way is really what's beautiful and joyful about the practice of generosity, where you see it's not just we people who have a lot doing something for you poor people who don't. That's a kind of minimum kind of generosity. It's not the generosity that's really transforming our hearts. It's the quality of generosity that it really is in that moment liberating our heart from greed. For sure, we stop hanging on to whatever it is we're offering but also in that open, very present giving and receiving, the sense of who's giving to who honestly starts to break down. 
I mean, this might sound kind of, you know, pie in the sky, but I've been there enough times in Burma and spoken with so many other people who've been there too and have the same experience, so I know it's not just me. After a while, you get happier and happier when people are generous, and it's contagious. You start wanting to be generous yourself. At first, with my kind of American conditioning, oh my God, these poor people are giving me so much, I've got to start giving back. But that doesn't feel good. That's not transforming. You know, that's a kind of me needing to do the right thing. I mean, it's better than stealing from people, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's not, but it's, it's not the transformation of seeing through our separation, of really when the heart releases from holding on, there's this sense of interconnectedness, of the joy that comes from the giving and from the receiving that's absolutely uplifting and faith-building. Shanti Deva was a he was a great Tibetan teacher. No, he wasn't Tibetan. He was Indian. He led to some of the Tibetan teachings. But he said once, um, "When I've done something for the sake of another, I feel no elation. I look for nothing in return. It's like having fed myself. I look for nothing in return. It's that sense." Or the Buddha saying, "If you you know never let a day go by without sharing a meal." This sense is so in the culture that we start to catch it. I start to catch it. And you can feel the heart and mind open up, become lighter, become more content, become less needy, become less wanting. And the happiness of offering is really a beautiful thing. I'll just give you a couple of other little examples We offered the year after the cyclone, there's a big cyclone, it's like a hurricane, sort of like Katrina, only in one part of Burma, not too far from Rangoon, Yangon. So we went to our monastery in the winter, and even the villages around there had really lost a lot in the the cyclone, the poor, really poor villagers had lost some of their houses, the rice crops had been ruined, there wasn't enough rice. So the teacher, the abbot of this monastery, wanted to organize what's called a rice dana. Dana means generosity there, which just meant that we, we bought a lot of bags of rice. We had this whole huge room, like maybe half the size of this, filled up with bags of rice. And then all the villagers would come, and they each had a, a little chit for their house and how many people in the house, and we would give each villager a bag of rice. But they don't just, like, I could imagine here we'd go, okay, here's the room, go take your rice, and we'd all be happy. But there, no. The Sayadaw came, the Sayadaw's a teacher. He came and dragged us, who had off, we had brought money from our friends. So there were six of us, but we were very clear. We were just the representative of all the friends from uh, the States and Europe and Australia who had offered the money. He said, no, you can't just do that. You have to come, and we put the rice on the table, and each person who comes, you hand them the bag of rice. So I... I have pictures of Narayan and I were both there, and these little ladies, these tiny little ladies would come up. We could, Narayan and I together could barely heave this bag of rice, and they'd plop it on their head. I'm not kidding, these skinny little ladies would go walking off, some of them with kids in their arms. It's unbelievable, you know. So we did all these, all day, giving rice to the people in this village. Okay, great. And then the next day, the monks there, in all, in, in all of Burma, in all Buddhist countries, the monks still go out early in the morning on what's called alms round. They go out with their bowls, with their eyes down, 
and they just walk among the villagers, and anyone who wants to offer food can do so. There's no, I mean, there's, they don't ask, they don't speak, they just go on their set route every day. Everyone knows where they're coming, and if they want to offer food, they can. This is back from the time of the Buddha. In his time, that was the only way they got food. Now in a lot of the monasteries, food is also cooked. Lay people come in, or people come in and offer. So in these poor areas, like this area, the monks go out every day, and they, all they get is a little bit of rice. But it's really this sense of offering the opportunity for generosity. So they do that. Not that they actually need their rice, because people come and buy the meals for the day, but they're offering the opportunity for people who are poor to come and be able to offer something. It's this really interesting dynamic. So we had a friend, a a guy from Mexico, who was going on alms round. So he told us. He'd been there a few months. said they go every day, the same little route. The same villagers come every day. They know who comes. He said the day after that rice, Donna, there were so many more people out offering rice because now they had a little rice. And the first thing they did was it was to be able to go and actually offer something back. And it was just so beautiful. And he said one family had all their little kids lined up, and each little kid, you know, had the chance to put rice in a bowl. There's no pressure. No one's there saying you need to do it. It's because of the joy and the happiness and the, the symbiosis of that. So it's something that I've started to get more kind of in my cells over all the years of being there. And it's really become quite profound. And I, I mean, I completely changed my mind. I'm not saying that, but I can see how this is the practice of awakening, the practice of non-clinging, the practice of not being all about me and fear of you and needing to hold on to what I have, the practice of trust that enough will be enough. We give now, and when I need it, will come. It's been quite amazing. Just And one last little story, just to show it's not just monks and nuns. I was walking on the road through the village between the two meditation centers where I was staying one afternoon by myself. And a little boy, about seven or eight, came walking up to me. I never saw him before or since. He had no clue who I was. And he came up, and he was dressed in his little school uniform, very nicely dressed little boy, and had a tiny little jasmine flower. So he came up to me, and then very formal with his, with his jasmine flower, did this formal bow, which is a respectful way that people say hello and thank you and everything, and, and just really focused, handed me this little flower. And we both bowed. I said, thank you in Burmese, my, my one word, and he went off. That was it. I just was so touched by that. Just this sense of the, the connection, you know. It's not about what's given. There's a place where the Buddha said, you know, even if you throw, you rinse your dirty bowl and you throw the, that rinse water in a pond and you think, may whatever beings live in this pond be able to benefit to eat or drink something from this rinse water, that's an act of generosity. Because it's not so much what, but how. So it's said in the way of giving before, before giving, just really bring attention to the sense of volition. So it's not just this guy, oh yeah, you need something here, take it. I've done that many times. A friend was saying to me once, oh, remember that, that casual 
generosity of yours at that one point and this thing I've used so much. He didn't mean it in a bad way, but it really went in. He was right. It had been a really thoughtless kind of generosity. I just had this thing. I said, I don't want it. Do you want this? He said, oh, yeah, I'd love it. You know? And he did love it, and I didn't, but there was, there was no real connection in that. You know, So it's just simply bringing attention to your intention. And then when we give, really being present with it. That's all. Not like, I'm so great, I'm giving you this, but just being present with the whole giving and the whole receiving. There's something that's so powerful about that. At first I was a little shy about that, all kind of self-referencing, you know. But again, in Burma, when you give, uh, when we go to the nunneries, we give them money to, because they don't get so much as monks, to buy food or to build a new floor or to put a roof on that isn't leaking, I mean, to build toilets. Toilets are a great thing give money for, by the way. <laughs> you know, it's very basic stuff, so you give money. Now, in Burma, the money's like in big piles because uh, it just, it's not worth that much. So you could, when you're going to give money, you do it very formally. They go and get this big tray. You pile the money up, and like $100 could be like a big pile like this, you know. And like, at first, it looks so crass, doesn't it? Handing over this big pile of money and go, oh, God, you know, I thought it'd be like a little nicer than that. But it's different. You, the, the nuns will sit there. We'll sit there. We all put our, well, not depends how many people there are, you know, but a few nuns, a few of the givers. Together, you put your hands on the tray. You hold it up. You're kneeling down, you know, with your knees back, so this can be quite agonizing if it goes on for very long. And they chant this beautiful kind of chant of blessing and thanks. And it's a really common thing. They say, you know, with this gift, may this gift be a cause for your awakening from suffering. May your generosity bring you to awakening in the shortest possible time. That's a common thing to say. It's really different than when I write a check and put it in an envelope. I mean, I could still be more present for that than I am. You can still cultivate the intention and the connection, but there's not that that immediacy. And in fact, just last week, someone friend, a yogi, a meditator, gave me a check to bring to Burma, which is very nice. And she, but as she gave it to me, it just came in my mind to say that, like they do. And So she's handing it to me, and I just said, oh, may this generosity be a cause for your quick awakening from suffering and liberation. And I could just see her whole face change. I don't usually say that because it sounds so kind of, I don't know, weird. <laughs> I figured I could do it at the end of a three-month retreat, but... Uh, I just kind of came out and I was like, oh. It gives it so much more power. And it honors what you're doing, you know, in the generosity. It really starts to change our habits and bring us joy. And then afterwards, and this is really, I think, really important because it's not something we do very much. But the Buddha talked about this both with moral conduct and with generosity, and I can see I'm not going to have much time at all for moral conduct, but which is afterwards, after you've been generous, after you've refrained, and moral conduct can just be refraining from harmful behavior, that's an act of wholesomeness. That's an act of compassion, of non-harming. Just refraining 
I'm taking something that isn't yours. But anyway, is to actually reflect on your past acts of generosity, your past acts of non-harming behavior. And I know in, in, in my culture anyway, we think, well, think about how generous I've been. Sounds like a real kind of ego trip, right? Oh, yeah, I'm so generous. It's not that at all. Let me read this to you from the Buddha. Furthermore, this is the case where you recollect your own generosity. And then he's saying, It is a gain, it is a great gain for me that among people who are overcome with possessiveness, I live at home. My awareness is cleaned of the stain of possessiveness, generous, open-handed, delighting in being generous and responsive to requests. And this is the key. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones, when someone on the path is recollecting generosity, in the moment of recollecting, her mind is not overcome with greed. There's only room for one thing in there. If we're really recollecting generosity, we're not filled with greed. It's, it's really very simple how it works. We're not overcome with aversion. We're not overcome with delusion. Her heart, her mind heads straight based on generosity. And when the heart is headed straight, the disciple has a sense of the goal, gains a sense of the dharma, of the truth, experiences joy connected with the dharma, with the truth. And in one who is joyful, the body grows calm. One whose body is calmed experiences ease. And in one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. And then he goes on how this leads all the way up to liberation. The exact same for recollecting your virtuous actions. The times that you just simply refrain from doing something harmful. You don't have to be Mother Teresa. Just thinking of the times you've restrained from doing something harmful. The times that you've done something simply generous, like a friend calls and wants to talk about their problems, and you think, I'm too tired. But you know, you know what? I can listen. Recollecting that, it heads our minds straight. It's really a way of purifying our heart and mind. It's not about, I'm so great. So he goes on, he's talking to a layperson. He said, you can develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with children. Basically, any time, right? Any time. So, okay, I always do this. I have no time to talk about. <laughs> about sila, non-harming behavior. I will just end, okay, two minutes, so I'll just end with why. But something that really inspired me in an underhanded way last year to appreciate both the subtlety and depth of the difficult habits of mind. This isn't to put ourselves down, not to be judgmental, but why the the importance, the absolute essential importance for me, for hopefully for all of us, to cultivate, to transform our habits of greed, of fear, for our own happiness and for the happiness of the world. 
because it's just, it's so comfortable. Even though it's bringing us suffering, it's so comfortable to fall back into greed, to fall back into kind of denial, to fall back into delusion. And without really understanding how our minds and hearts work, without really looking and seeing, is it true that these qualities bring suffering? Don't believe anything you read or me. Look and see. Not with judgment, but just look and see. Because I see for myself, all these years I've been doing this, I totally know for me what I'm saying is true. I know it for me. You don't know it for you, or you may, but don't believe me. Look and see. But that doesn't mean I absolutely know what my mind or heart would do in the most difficult circumstances. You know, I know what I think I'd like to do, but it's not always in our control. So a year ago last summer, I was in Germany again, and I visited Dachau, where I had never managed to visit before, you know, the, one of the concentration camps. And they have it set up as a museum, and I think they did a really good job. Um, so first I was amazed how big it was. And then my friends, my German friends, said, oh, Carol, that wasn't even one of the big ones. And the way it was set up, as a museum, they had big, you know, placards, posters describing all different aspects, you know, every aspect you could think of in all different ways. But there is also a way that they, with each specific thing, like, for instance, they one room of all the different um, groups of people that had been put in concentration camps, all the Roma, or people from Hungary, or gay people, or Jewish people, or Catholic, whatever, you know, all. But they didn't leave it impersonal. There was almost always uh, some, some name, a picture of someone, some little story for people who were in, in, the, in the concentration camp, people who worked there, people who did all, all the different aspects, people who lived in the community. And so, and I was also watching, it was really crowded. Somehow I thought I was just going to be wandering around there by myself, but it was packed. And so I just was watching people go through it. And that was also interesting because you could see couples go in there, chit-chat, chit-chatting, and as they're getting through, you could really see them getting touched. It was done in such a good way uh, in order to, to kind of touch your heart. You just couldn't stay impersonal. So what that did for me, I, the day I went there, I was kind of having a, a hard month, but I thought it, it brought me even more deeply into a sense of what I'm doing and what I hope we're all doing is so important. Because this is not just something about Germany in the 1940s. I mean, we only have to read history, right? Or read the news in terms of, I don't even have to name places, do I? The endless atrocities and genocides in the last 20, 30 years in this world, in history, all through time, stuff that's going on now in Somalia or in uh, Sudan, uh, the Khmer Rouge, racism in this country. I mean, it just, it's everywhere. And what I got from looking at all those people is this is a bunch, so many people. It's not just a few monsters who came up with some weird idea. It's many, many, many people in all different situations. And it's not like we make one big decision. I don't know what I would do if I were in a situation where my family would be threatened or the people I love would be threatened. And all I have to do in my mind to protect them is turn a blind eye. Not even actively do something, but just turn a blind eye. 
I don't know. I can say what I wish I would do, but I don't really know. So we see this little, I really felt like it's just a series of tiny little decisions that we each make in our life. And when I'm not at ease with greed or I don't understand fear or I don't see how it can, resistance can color all my decisions, then resistance or fear or greed is going to guide my decisions. Even when I think, oh, I want to be a good person, but I don't understand how my mind works. And so somehow that, I don't know, even again gave me a whole other level of inspiration. It's not just about meditation, but about just in the little moments. Some little moment when, and there's no right or wrong. There is no right or wrong. Not that you should always give or you should always not give. But when I, when I pass you know, someone on the street saying, I'm homeless and I need money. Each time, right? It's a new decision, isn't it? Each time. Not you always give or you never give, but each time, do I just walk by? Do I give? Either way, do I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it? And if I give, can I not be embarrassed and just be really present in that? Not think I'm doing something good for someone else, but just be offering. If I don't give, know why I'm not giving. It's just our whole life is just little moments, little moments, little moments of decision. But we can just take these chances of generosity, of restraining from, from stealing, from hurting people, from lying, from harsh speech. Just restraining. And do that consciously and reflect on the sense of connectedness and wholesomeness and contentment that that can really bring us. I really believe, actually, that both of these could be practices of liberation when you're sitting at home in your house crowded with children. You can't come to meditate. So thank you for your kind attention. I'm sorry I went three minutes over. <laughs> okay. <I> could go. <laughs> thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.